0: We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. Well, what a great way to start a brand new series. Thank you, Natalie. Uh, This series is called People Get Ready. Get ready. Uh, Get ready for what? Your future. Uh, You know, so much of the Bible is about preparation, being prepared and getting ready for the return of Jesus. Jesus being prepared and getting ready for our appointment with eternity, for the inevitability of trials and testings that we'll all face, preparation even for that, uh, the uh, preparation or getting ready to sacrifice now for a later greater prize. And so over the next few weeks, Pastor Keith and I are going to help you get ready for your future no matter what your future holds. Now, I I was quite excited, I'm so excited about this series because as Pastor Matt mentioned at the top of our gathering, this is the last series of 2020, and it's the last series of our year-long Jesus Project, Uh, 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 focused on the Gospel of Luke. We spent one year in the Gospel of Luke, and actually on Saturday, I was sitting at my kitchen table going over my notes for this weekend, and it just hit me uh, like a ton of bricks as I just... Thought about, it was in November 2018, two years ago, that Pastor Keith and I first began to plan the Jesus Project series. And I can't believe, we we had no idea what 2020 was going to be like. No idea. But look at the applicability of Scripture, the relevancy of Scripture. It's amazing how the Gospel of Luke could have been written for a COVID-19 season, even though we didn't know it was going to happen. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit led us towards this, but also just how applicable each of the series have been over the course of this year. I'm kind of sad to see it come to an end, but what a great moment, and I hope even as you've looked over your shoulder over 2020 and you see the gospel of Luke front and center, I hope your confidence in Scripture is growing. And I hope that your confidence in Jesus, even as a result of being with us today, will be deeper and stronger than ever before. So, uh, because this is the first message in the last series of 2020, I'm going to read a little bit at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke and a little bit at the end of the Gospel of Luke. So, if you have your Jesus Project book or you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 1. Let's read. It says this. Luke starts out and he says, Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught. Luke starts his gospel out by by trying to uh, assert the reliability of Scripture. You can trust its accuracy, he's saying. Then in the 24th chapter of Luke, starting in verse 13, he writes, that same day, two of Jesus' followers were were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. And the story says Jesus appears to them. He's been risen from the grave, and he's walking alongside them. They don't recognize him. And he asks them, because they're visibly sad, he says, what's wrong? What's going on? And so here's how they respond. Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said, he was a prophet who did powerful miracles. He was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and they crucified him. We had hoped he was a Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. Then some of the women We're at this tomb, and they came back with an amazing report that his body was gone. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people. You find it so hard to believe all the prophets wrote in the scriptures? Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses. And that's an important part. Took him through the writings of Moses. Uh, sorry, lost my place here. And all the prophets explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning him. They said to each other, Didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? So Luke starts off by describing the reliability of scripture, why you can trust it, why it's accurate, and he ends off the teaching by explaining the key, the linchpin to the power of Scripture and what it means. So I want to talk to you a little bit about Scripture and how you read it and how you understand it, because it's critically important if you're going to grow deep roots in Jesus and if you're going to be able to endure whatever the future brings. So you know, if you've been a part of One Church TO for any length of time, you, you know that this is not a book. The Bible's not a book. Uh, It's better described as a library. It's a library of 66 different ancient documents. Uh, The first written in about 1400 BC. The last, uh, well, there's some debate. 68, 67 AD by the Apostle Paul or as late as 90 AD. uh, Maybe the book of Revelation. There's some debate over when that happened. But basically about a 1500 year span that these documents were put together. What connects them? What connects them? You know, when you think about that, 1,500 years, multiple authors written in three different languages uh, using many different literary devices from prophetic literature and poetic literature and history and letters, all this accumulation of documents. But there's something common and something that connects them all. Now, why should that matter to you? Because what connects these 66 books is actually what connects each of us. What connects these 66 books is what connects you and I to eternity. What connects these books are actually what connects us to the confidence that we can find in this COVID-19 season, a deep rooted confidence. But if I'm gonna talk about scripture, I wanna acknowledge that it's not always easy for people, this book. (laughs) This book is not always easy, and if you ask the average Torontonian, and maybe some of you watching or that are here today, maybe you'd, have, maybe you'd admit that you might say, well, there's some good things in this, but many Torontonians say, well, there's good things in it, but there's some wrong things in it too. Some would question the historical reliability of Scripture, especially the New Testament portion, and I'll, I'll get into why, and many... Many tr- struggle with the Bible because they find parts of it culturally regressive, maybe primitive, maybe even oppressive. How, how do you handle those things? How do you deal with those things? I want to be clear about our relationship with this book. See, I grew up in the Protestant stream, evangelicals, and we, we have a, a, traditionally a high view of Scripture. So we believe in just the authority of Scripture and, and that, that, that it's God-breathed and inspired Uh, Here's what is the danger, though, sometimes. That's very good. That's very good. But sometimes what we do is, and I've seen this over the years, 28 years of pastoring, I've seen this, where people go beyond elevating Scripture to venerating Scripture. I've met people that love this more than you could see evidence of them actually loving Jesus. I've met people that love the Bible, studied the Bible, but were not loving to people. And we gotta be very clear about what the goal is and what God has done when he, when he gave us scripture, these books that illuminate God to us and explain and help us understand who he is. We need to understand that we don't worship a book here. We don't worship a book, we worship Jesus. God didn't give us scripture so that we'd fall in love with scripture. He gave us scripture so we'd fall in love with God. <laughs> he gave us scripture so that we would love people better. So if you're a student of the Word and it's not helped, it's not made you a more loving person, a kinder person, a more patient person, a gentle, a person with self-control, a person that's uh, uh, loving and peaceful, uh, you need this teaching because you might be reading Scripture wrong. This is really important. How you interact with this book is critical to how deeply you grow in your relationship with God. What connects these books is Jesus. See, Jesus is what holds the Bible together. Oh, 66 books over 1,500 years. How could there be continuity? What's the cumulative message over that 1,500-year span? Jesus. Jesus is what holds the Bible together. In fact, Jesus is what holds our church together. Not, not me as a pastor, not our deacons, not our volunteers, not other pastors. Hey, listen, uh, all of us are not that important. Now, you're important, I'm important, we're all important. But the church is not hinging on us. It's Jesus that holds the church together. He holds the Bible together. He holds the church together. And if you'll let him, friend, Jesus will hold you together you know, jump into the chat room and and, and just give an amen to that if you've experienced moments where you know it was Jesus holding you together. So what I want to do today is I want to build your confidence in God's Word and inevitably in the person of Jesus. Because no matter what the future holds, you need to know that you're serving a God that will hold you in that moment. So If you allow me, I'm going to get a little nerdy with you today. You ready for a little bit of Jonathan Smith nerdy side? Because I, I want to help you see Scripture in a way that hopefully will build greater confidence in it. And the first thing I want you to know is this, that you can trust the Bible historically. You can trust the Bible historically. Now, why is that even a question? Well, there's a line of thought, and certainly as I was growing up, I heard this multiple times, and, and, and you've probably heard it too, that, that the Scriptures have been tampered with. That, that they're a little unreliable historically, especially the New Testament ones, that maybe church leaders kind of twisted them or changed them to consolidate power at different points in time. So the idea of Jesus being divine, the exclusivity of Jesus, that there's only one way to the Father, or even the miraculous events of, the Jesus, of Jesus' life, they were added by church leaders later trying to consolidate power. And that's kind of the thought around it, and that was popularized certainly in the last 20 years by fictional books like The Da Vinci Code and others, as well as some uh, documents, uh, 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 documentaries that you can find on the History Channel and others that, that deal with the conspiracy theory side of things. Have you ever noticed how many conspiracy theories are out there? And I know this, and jump in the chat room and tell me if, if you're one of those type of people. There are certain types of people, they love conspiracies, right? They love that. Here, here's the problem as a pastor that sometimes I have to interact with often is I, I call it clickbait theology. So many people get tied up in YouTube videos and, and conspiracies and other things and, and they develop a theology based on some Poor hermeneutics, and hermeneutics is the study of Scripture, and poor theology, but they begin to, because it's sensationalized, they love the sensational. And if you know anything about Pastor Keith or myself, or even Pastor Keith's predecessor, Stuart Mulligan, or anyone on our pastoral staff, We're we're not into clickbait theology, we're not into sensationalizing things. We want to give you the meat and potatoes that'll grow you and help you to become that authentic follower of Jesus that is actively learning to live like Jesus. So in the gospel accounts, I want to help you understand that you can have confidence in its history. And I'm going to give you two examples for one. First off, the, the, the New Testament was written too early to be a myth or a legend or even to have been tampered with. The Gospel of Luke, where we've been for this last year, was written only 30 years after Jesus died. So when Luke was writing the account of Jesus' life, he had first-hand eyewitnesses to interview. He, he, they, he heard what they said about Jesus, what they saw, what they heard Jesus teach. And he recorded it down. In fact, even earlier than that would have been the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote about 15 to 20 years after Jesus had had died. And in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says this. He says, he being Jesus, after he had been risen from the grave, was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive. So Paul's writing this in a document that was circulated widely during his day and time. If if it hadn't been true, there were people that could have denied it. Think of it this way. There were thousands of people still alive when Paul was writing, when Luke was writing, who were both pro and con Jesus, who would have been able to say, yeah, well, the guy was crucified. I saw saw that. And, And many, many people would say they saw him risen from the grave. So it was written quite early in the span of Jesus. If all these things had not happened, if Jesus had not been crucified, if, if he hadn't appeared to people in his risen state, if there hadn't been an empty tomb, those public documents would have been discredited in the first century, and they would have, Christianity would never have caught on fire. That's, that's a compelling reason in itself, but I, I find the second reason even more compelling about the authenticity of Scripture and why you can trust its, its history. And the second reason is simply this. The documents, especially in the New Testament, they're just too controversial not to be true. I mean, the theory is this, that the church leaders some 80 years maybe or 100 years after Jesus had walked this earth, they doctored the text. So you can't really know what Jesus was like or what he really did. And I, I, I keep thinking, like, if I was... If I was in that first century, if I was an early church leader and I was trying to rewrite the text, would I write it the way it is, really? Would I have Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane saying to the Father in heaven, can I not do this? I I don't want to go through with this. Would I have Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, Would I have written that the first witnesses of Jesus being risen from the grave were all women? In a season, in an ancient culture, where women's testimonies were inadmissible in court because of their low social status? Of course not. I'd have men having encountered Jesus for the first time to bring credibility to the message. And then you read the book of Acts and further, and you see all the heroes of the early church, the apostles, and on every single page, they look foolish half the time. They, they, they make so many mistakes. They're slow of heart. Uh, sometimes they look terrible. Sometimes they even look like jerks. Like, would, would I have written the account that way? No, I, I wouldn't have. The only reason all of these things may have been included in Scripture is because they really happened. They really happened. So I want you to trust in the historicity of Scripture that, that it was written too early and it's too controversial Not to be true. And these are the litmus tests. It's the most scrutinized literature in the entire world. And read some good historians around it, and you'll see you can trust the text. The second thing I want you to see is that you can trust the Bible historically, but you can also trust the Bible culturally. You can trust it culturally. And what I mean by this is some people, they wouldn't struggle with the historicity of Scripture, but they struggle when they think of the Bible about its cultural relevance. They think some of the teaching in it seems oppressive, seems regressive to modern ears, maybe something better left behind, a little primitive in nature. So how do you respond to that? Well, are there parts of the Bible that bother you? I want you to think of whatever part of the Bible might bother you. I'm going to give you a way to handle any portion of Scripture that is controversial, offensive in nature, or might be a barrier to your faith and growing in your faith. I'm going to give you a way to handle any of those scriptures, uh, any of those portions, or any of those teachings. And, and it goes like this. If you can think of whatever that portion might be, here's the first way you can handle the hard-to-handle ha- hard portions of the Bible. You need to first please consider that perhaps the text isn't teaching what you think it's teaching. It may not even be teaching what you think it's teaching. Remember those two followers of Jesus on the road to Emmaus? They're upset. They're sad. Why? Because they think the Bible teaches something that it doesn't. They're convinced that the Bible was teaching something that it didn't. And they're so upset. And it took Jesus coming their way and explaining Scripture differently to them until the lights came on and they realized it wasn't teaching at all what we thought. So you need to be patient with some of the text because maybe it's not teaching what you think. I was thinking about when I was a young adult. I remember reading through, I decided I'm going to read through the Bible. And I started in the book of Genesis. And you know, I got to tell you, it bothered me a lot. And what bothered me in the book of Genesis so much was the the treatment of women. Uh, There's two major themes in Genesis when it comes to women. And one of them is polygamy. And this is the practice of a man marrying many wives. They have many wives. And the other is uh, primogeniture, which is the practice of the firstborn male gets the entire inheritance. I'm a middle child, so that means my brother Peter would have gotten everything. Everything. And then your siblings would be indentured to you. Uh, You'd be reliant on their benevolence. And women, they, they could get nothing. They could get nothing. And then to compound this in this kind of patriarchal society that was very patriarchal, the heroes of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're pretty terrible to women. They had many wives, which clearly put the man in the seat of power. Uh, Not only did they have many wives, they bought and sold wives. (laughs) Uh, There were bride prices on on, on wives. So you can understand when people read portions of the Bible and they read things like this, they're going like, this is terrible. This is repressive. This is offensive. What do you do? How do you handle pieces like that? Well, as theologians will point out to you, you can't just take one sliver of Scripture or one sliver of the story without extrapolating it over the entire narrative to understand how it fits. And what I mean by that is, if you follow and you keep reading in the, in the Old Testament, you begin to realize that polygamy wreaks havoc on every generation. It's incredibly destructive, and the Bible illuminates that. It shows how destructive it is. And then you see as you read Scripture that God is consistently subverting a primogeniture, preferring the younger to the older. Have you ever noticed that? That it's always able, not king. It's always Isaac, not Ishmael. It's always Jacob, not Esau. See, this is really important. What's happening here is God is subverting the patriarchal institutions. He's subverting them throughout scripture. He's subverting the patriarchal institutions. You see, God, I love what the Bible does here. The Bible doesn't condone their behavior. The Bible records their behavior and then God subverts it. That's what's happening there. It's recorded, and then it's subverted. So I'm married to Shelley. I'm no better than Shelley. And you know what a lot of people do? They'll grab on So some people get offended by this, and they get turned off Scripture because they don't read it in context. Other people grab hold of these things and they use it to prop up their little bits of theology, ignoring the whole New Testament, that we're neither male nor female, Greek or Jew, but we are all equal before God. My wife, Shelley has an equal standing before God as I do. I'm not more important than her, and she's not more important than me. And the same is true of you and others around you. And that's the teaching of Scripture. It doesn't condone the behavior of people back there. It records it. And then it subverts it. Here's the second thing, if you're struggling with a portion of scripture. So the first is, please consider that it might not be saying what you think it's saying. The second second is this, perhaps you're misreading the text through your own cultural lens. I think we need to all acknowledge that we all have some sort of cultural bias. Every one of us does. Those two uh, followers of Jesus on the road to Emmaus certainly did. See, they were good Jewish boys. <laughs> they knew what this prophet said. They knew the scriptures well, but they had completely misread them because they had read them through their cultural bias. They thought that the Messiah was coming to redeem Israel, and they crucified their one hope of being freed from the Romans. They didn't understand that the prophecies were saying that Jesus wasn't coming to redeem Israel, he was coming to redeem all of his creation, everyone. So they completely miss the truth of it. That's so easy for all of us because all of us need to recognize we all have a cultural frame of reference. And you know, occasionally, I have lots of pastoring friends Across this nation, as well as in the states, and occasionally one of my American friends will say, and I, I love my American friends, but they'll they'll ask, "What's it like to pastor a multicultural church?" Because in the states, it's a lot more segregated. Do you have your Latino churches, your African American churches, your Caucasian churches, but you don't have a lot that are as mixed. Like we have over seventy nationalities in this church, and I hope you feel the same as I do. It's a privilege. It is a privilege to be a part of a multi-generational, multicultural church. It's a game changer. It's a game changer. But but, but there is some harder aspects to it. I regularly encounter people that have strong cultural convictions, that they've elevated to be biblical. So they, they, they feel like they know what a prayer meeting should look like, or they feel they know what... Being dressed up for Sunday should look like or whatever it may be they take their cultural frame of reference and superimpose it onto Scripture and then want to impose it on others if you're a part of One Church TO you know we all have to give up some of our preferences to be in such a diverse community together see the Bible contradicts everybody's cultural biases at some point or another every culture bows to the cross Because every culture has brokenness in it, doesn't it? I mean, I I said this in the first gathering, it accidentally came out of my mouth, but but I hope you're hearing me. If you read the Bible, and if the Bible doesn't rub you the wrong way, I don't think you're reading it right. If the Bible doesn't rub you the wrong way, perhaps you're not reading it the right way. The truth is, for you and me, your great-grandchildren... Your great-grandchildren will find a lot of what you think to be absolutely embarrassing someday. I mean, I can think of my great-grandparents, if they were on stage with me right now, and we are having a conversation, depending on the topic, I might not want them to speak. Because in their own perspective in that moment, they were so culturally relevant to that era that maybe what they would speak might not even be in line with what Scripture is. And could that be true of us? It's so important that we read the scripture properly. It's so important that we have a good, what, the, what theologians call a good hermeneutic, a way of reading the word of God that allows us to not, it doesn't uh, uh, wash away our cultures because that's the beauty of God's creation. Thank God for our diversity in our cultures. But it allows our kingdom culture, the culture of being a follower of Jesus to supersede everything else in our lives. So you can trust the Word of God historically. You can trust the Bible culturally. And here's the last point. We're almost done here. You can trust the Bible to be transformative, to be transformative. Look at verse 32. You probably heard it when I read it off the top of our gathering. Didn't our hearts burn within us when he talked with us on the road and explained the, can you say this word with me? Scriptures to us. You know, that word heart, in the English language, means the seat of your emotions. You know, I heart you. I love you. <laughs> you know, it's the emoji kind of feeling in the English language. But in the biblical understanding of the heart, is not to do with your emotions. It's to do with your whole self. So Greek scholars will tell you that phrase, your heart's burn within you, means to have an uncontrollable desire for someone. Here's what this means. There's two people walking down the road and they have an encounter with Jesus. And there's an eruption of love in their hearts. They are transformed, friends, from people that are forlorn, people that are hopeless, people that are in despair, to people with courage and confidence and and, and faith that just is ready to erupt. And there's this deep, passionate love in there. When did this happen? Well, it happened... When he explained the scriptures to them. When they understood what the scripture was saying, that's when it happened. Look what it says in verse twenty 21. Let's track their change. They're walking along and they said, but our leading priests and all the religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who'd come to rescue Israel. He had died on a cross. He had died on a cross. We thought he was going to save us. And Jesus responds, you know, he, he says, You foolish people, foolish people, you find it hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. He's basically saying, Don't you understand? The Christ had to suffer. It's plain in the prophecies. You've missed it because you're reading it through your cultural lens. You've missed, I had to suffer. I had to die. And then he goes on to say this. Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Everything in the Bible is about Jesus. He took him through Moses and all the prophecies and showed him everything concerning himself. Everything in the Bible is about Jesus. Have you been reading it right? See, see if everything in the Bible is about you, then you're going to be looking at Scripture to find ways to get God's blessing. Find ways to almost arm wrestle God. Like, God, if I do this, you have to bless me. God, if I do this, you have to protect me. And it's almost a way of manipulating God. It's a a form of almost idolatry in the way that we would approach scripture that way. Sometimes we, we get caught in this trap where we think everything is about us. And if everything is about you in this Bible, then all you need is rules to save you. You don't need a savior to die for you. You can read the Bible as if it's all about you, or you can read the Bible as if it's all about Jesus and what he's done for you, what he's done for you. And you can see throughout the Old Testament, right into the New Testament. And the example is given in Luke. It says, it's kind of interesting that Jesus names Moses. He says, from the teachings of Moses to the prophets. Do you remember the story of Moses and the Exodus and the children of God, coming out of captivity from Egypt into the promised land? What is that story about? Is it about you? If it is about you, then you're gonna be looking to see how Moses was able to find courage to confront Pharaoh so you can confront the difficulties in your situation. Or maybe you're looking at Moses because maybe he can reveal what it means to be a gifted leader and and, and to be a strong person. But, But no, 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 no. I mean, if you're really listening to what scripture is saying, you know that God's not coming to Moses and saying, Moses, I mean, you're a pretty amazing guy. You're a pretty amazing guy, Moses. You're keeping the Ten Commandments. You're, you're, you're a stellar leader. I'm going to give you the privilege of leaving my people out of captivity into the promised land. No, no, no. That's not the point of the Exodus story. The Exodus story happened to the nation of Israel. But as we see Jesus in the text, you need to understand, the story of Exodus is revealing this. Every one of us, every one of us deserve to die for the sins that we've all committed. The things we've done that damaged this world and damaged us and damaged others, we all deserve that. And we all need something to be sacrificed to pay for the debt of all the things that we collectively done. And in the Exodus story, there's a lamb that was slain and the blood was put on the doorpost and as long as you were under it, you were saved. And the story of Jesus is this. He is the Lamb of God who took away the sins of this world. And as we turn to him, his sacrifice is applied to our lives and we are saved. He is the second Moses leading us out of captivity into a place of freedom. See, in that whole narrative, he's the water in the desert. He's the manna, the bread of life in that desert. He's the altar. He's the light. He's the prophet. He's the priest. He's the king. Everything is about Jesus. So what would it look like? To read scripture, and our first question would not be, how do I get something out of this? What would it look like to read scripture and say, where's Jesus in this? And then, how does it apply to me? What would it look like to put Jesus first as we look in God's word and then ask how it applies to us? And the Holy Spirit has a way of illuminating it to us. Listen, in January of this year, uh, this next year, I guess, 2021, Pastor Keith and I are already working on a series, and it's a series that's really going to focus on intimacy with God, closeness with God. How do you get closer to God? And we're going to talk about this powerful tool that God's given us called prayer and what it looks like to cultivate a life of prayer. Because I'm really sensing as we head into 2021, I want us to go boldly into this new year, not limping. And I know this, it's our connection to God that builds that strong foundation that we can handle whatever comes at us. But even before we get to that January series, I want you to understand that Jesus bled Scripture. If you read about Jesus in Scripture, you realize he's always quoting it. He's always talking about it. It's a part of who he is, and it needs to be a part of who you are. I want to encourage you, and here's a next step. Every gathering, we give you a next step, and Pastor Matt and Pastor Dennis will explain a little bit more about this next step, but I want to encourage you to join me in a seven-day reading plan this week. Many of our staff will be on it with us, but we're going to journey through the Bible uh, explain. And it's going to be a scripture reading plan. And we're going to do that together as a c- church community. And I'll be in there interacting with you. Let's get, go deeper in our walk with God by getting closer to his word and allowing his word to get into us. Let's pray. Well, Father, we, <laughs> we are so thankful for your son, Jesus. I don't know where we'd be without him. And we are thankful that when he came and died and rose again and ascended to you in heaven, he left his spirit here with us. And God, we have this this beautiful uh, 66 books, a revelation, a story of you that your Holy Spirit reveals you through Scripture. And I pray, God, that we would be humble people. Humble people ready to say, God... What would you say to us through this, your word? Jesus, where are you in this account? Where are you in this moment? What is this showing me about who you are and your character and your love for us and what you've done for us? And in turn, God, how can I apply it to my life? God, I pray for one church to Everyone that calls this their church home. May we be known, just as Jesus was, as people who loved your word, who loved your word, and God, who recognized that we're not here worshiping a book, we are here worshiping Jesus. And may your word cause us to be more loving to other people and more deeply in love with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.